All right, good morning. It starts to really feel like Christmas now, doesn't it? Um, we've eaten all the turkey that we can stuff into our faces, so that's good. And um, we've started to put up our Christmas trees. And in our house, we've got a couple things that I really look forward to every year. They're kind of simple things. But uh, we have this little advent calendar. We bought it at Starbucks maybe 10 years ago. It's cardboard. We put little chocolates and stuff in it. This year, it's hard candy. So when the boys get their candy every morning, it crunches real loud and that I don't know why I really look forward to that. We have these little three-foot Christmas trees that we put in each of the boys' rooms, and so they've got those little Christmas trees in. And we have this routine every night where um, our boys, before they go to bed, we, we did this, we started this maybe a year or two ago so we could get them to quiet down. You know, the bedtime can be a hectic time as a parent. And we would let them have this little, like, quiet reading time. Uh, but during the Christmas season, we add a little extra time to it. We call it quiet Christmas tree time. And so they get to put their book down, and look at the Christmas tree lights until we turn them off. And Jackson has his little parts where the first part, he wants his quiet reading time, and then he wants that to be over. And we take his book, and then it's quiet Christmas tree time. And then he tells us lights out when he's ready for that to be over, and he goes to bed really peacefully. Now, in case you think it's always been this way, it has not. (laughs) But through trial and error, we've come to this peaceful existence at bedtime. And it's wonderful. And I have all these things. I really love Christmas. There's great food, the decorations, the intentional time spent with people you care about. Uh, There's kind of a general spirit of kindness and generosity that seems to pervade a little bit more this time of year. And the list could go on. And if I were to survey you guys right now, I'm not going to. You could probably share your favorite parts about Christmas. Uh, But just this past week, I ran into somebody uh, who I spent some time with. And we were talking about Christmas. And they just said, I hate Christmas. And I'm always a little shocked. I run into people like that every so often, and it always takes me back or surprises me a little bit. It's about the same reaction I have when I come across a vegan. (laughs) Why would you do that? Why do you feel that way? And if you're a vegan, I'm telling you, I am so glad you're here this morning. (laughs) I just don't get you, but I am glad you're here, and there are health benefits to eating less meat. Anyway, while I have a hard time understanding being a vegan, I don't have a hard time understanding why certain people don't like Christmas. Um, I love it, but I can understand it. I can enter into that. Uh, There's a lot of uh, work, you know, decorating the tree takes time. You know, I understand why people buy trees with lights on them already. Putting them out on your house takes time. I don't even do that. It's a busy season. It can feel commercial. There's pressure uh, financially, perhaps, because you've got to spend this extra money to buy gifts, and you're not sure if they're going to like them. You don't want to spend the money. I I can get all of that. And besides all of those kind of surface-level things, there's deeper things, too, isn't there? Um, If your current life experience is leaning towards the darkness and you're struggling, being around the light at times can be maybe at best kind of annoying And sometimes it can feel kind of fake in other people's lives, can it? But wherever you are at this Christmas season, the message of Christmas is not that difficulty and darkness do not exist. That is not the message of Christmas. In fact, we know they exist. We uh, only have to look outside our doors. We only have to uh, watch our neighbors at times, turn on the news. Of course, darkness and difficulty exist. In fact, this morning we're going to look at three passages, and the Bible is a book full of hope. 
And in every single one of the passages that we are going to look at, I'm going to tell you the context before we look at them just briefly, and you'll see that almost the entire Bible is written into a life situation of darkness and of difficulty. Christianity is not a faith that just says, everything is awesome, right? And then just says, no big deal. There is no such thing as darkness. It's all good all the time. All the time it is good. That is not what Christianity says. And so this morning, as we look at the message of Christmas or the message that God is the light of the world, the message is that darkness exists, but darkness cannot overcome the light. And so this morning, please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I've got three passages, and we're just going to briefly work our way through them. And we're going to go to communion, and we're going to celebrate at the end in song. But as we look at these three passages, I just have a couple things that I want to give you, a couple takeaways as you begin this Christmas season. And as we go over these next couple weeks, we obviously are starting a brand new series on, entitled Light. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look first today at how Christ being the light of the world brings us hope. Next week, we'll look how Christ being the light of the world brings us life. The following week, we're going to look at how Christ being the light of the world gives us guidance for our lives. And then this series is going to culminate on Christmas Eve. We have two services this year. It's a little different than in the past. And we're going to do them a little earlier at 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock. I'm not even going to preach. Sarah's put together a scripture reading that's going to tell the story of light from beginning to end from the scriptures. And we're just going to have a time of music and of uh, singing and of scripture. And we're going to culminate it, as we always do, with lifting up that little candle and hoping our kids don't burn the place down. So that's what we're going to do. And, but today we start with the idea of hope. And we start with Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Now, I promised that I would give you the context of these passages before we did. In the context of Isaiah 9, before I read this, it's a very famous Christmas passage. Perhaps, you've, perhaps as I read it, you'll have heard it before. If you haven't, it's very well known. This passage in Isaiah chapter 9, the whole book of Isaiah was written in a context to a nation, the nation of Judah. In ancient Israel, there was a time when there was a single kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. But after only the third king, the nation divided. It ended divided into two nations, Judah and Israel. You can kind of imagine back to Civil War times. If the war had gone different and the South had been successful, they were not. If they had been, and our nation had divided into North America and South America, not the continents, but whatever, then you'd get kind of the picture of what is going on in this text. You would have a northern kingdom of America and a southern kingdom of America. But here, the context of this passage is there is a foreign superpower. They are the Assyrians. They won't be talked about in here. They'll be alluded to, but you need to know the context to see it. The Assyrians have already invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, and they've taken it over. Judah is still free, and Isaiah is a prophet to Judah, and he gives this prophecy during a time when the northern nation has already been taken captive. And the the atmosphere is ripe with tension, for the Assyrians are graphically violent, and they're about to invade Judah. The context of this, we're not sure if they've already invaded and just have not fully conquered. They never will, by the way. Or if they haven't started, but they're on the precipice of the the invasion. We're not sure about that. But we know that the conquering of Israel has already happened. And into that atmosphere, Isaiah writes these words. Starting in verse 1. 
Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are northern tribes. There were 10 northern tribes in Israel. Nebulun, or Zebulun and Naphtali were two of those 10 northern tribes. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and you have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now, in verse 3, we start with this, this imagery. First, the first imagery we see in verse 3 is the imagery of rejoicing at a nation whose borders have expanded. This may not mean anything to us as much anymore because our borders are fairly secure and the UN makes sure that nobody else takes too much people of other people's land, right? But here, the borders were always constantly changing. The Assyrians are increasing their borders and they're taking over land. But here, the imagery here is of a nation of power who is conquering foreign nations and they are rejoicing at the increasing of the borders and they are rejoicing at the harvest time as warriors when they divide the plunder. Verse 4, for in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. Here the imagery is of slavery, of the Israelites being under oppression under the Midianites. This refers back to the time of Gideon in the book of Judges and how God delivered them and how they were delivered from the slavery that the Midianites inflicted upon the Israelites. Verse 5, every, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. They will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The thing I want you to notice here that's a little funny is that the context of great doom impending from the Assyrians, here is a prophecy of hope. Verse 2, that the people who are in darkness will see a great light. And that light in verse 6 will be a baby, a child who will be born. And he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But you know, if you were going through a really hard time as a nation, and you were about to be conquered, I don't know if it would be great news. Oh, don't worry, there's a baby about to be born. If ISIS is on our doorstep killing us, oh, don't worry, a baby is coming right? You'd want a little bit more like a mighty warrior or tanks or something, right? But here, the tension is even further because it's not just that a baby will be born, but we know now from Matthew chapter 7 what they didn't know, or Matthew chapter 4, that the baby who will be born does not come for, four, or for 700 years. And God takes them through that time. Sometimes there were peace and prosperity, and sometimes there was not. But seven here, hundred years later, after this text is written, a baby comes. And it is of this baby that the text writes, his name will be Wonderful Counselor in verse 6, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government 
There will be no end. And he will rule forever and ever. But maybe you're thinking what I'm thinking, even as I read the text, for we are being brought into the tension. The audience who was listening to Isaiah chapter 9, 2,700 years ago, was finally delivered from the Assyrians. But this baby, the baby recorded in verse 6, wasn't born for 700 years. And even though that baby Jesus has been born and has already accomplished everything that verses 6 and 7 has foretold, we too live in that tension, don't we? For we do not see a world on earth where the government of Jesus has brought peace that will have no end, of a kingdom everlasting with justice and righteousness. But Isaiah promises it to us. And the light of Christ means that we hold on, waiting for that hope. I want to draw your attention to a second text. And it's a text that this one kind of leads us directly into. It's found for us in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It's just two short verses that we're going to read this morning from this text. And you can turn there in your Bibles, the blue Bibles in front of you on page 860. Isaiah, just as Isaiah wrote his prophecy to a people who are undergoing impending invasion, John writes his letter, his gospel, to a people who were under oppression from another empire, the Roman Empire. John tells us, interestingly enough, and we don't always get this in books of the Bible, every so often we do, but John, interestingly enough, tells us exactly why he wrote these verses. Growing up, there was even a little song about it. I won't sing it to you. But in John 20, 30 and 31, John tells us, I've written all these things, what Jesus has said and done, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. However, when John wrote his gospel, he wrote it into a context of difficulty and darkness. The environment was the impression of the Roman Empire. And again, we have a hard time uh, dating the book of John exactly. Some think it's late, some think it's earlier, but even the people who think it's late think it's before the end of the first century. And the people who think it's earlier think it's somewhere before 70 AD. And they have all kinds of reasons for that. And that's why you go to seminary. And I don't want to waste all my time. I only get a little bit of time talking about that. But nevertheless, whichever way you take it, the Roman Empire was oppressive. Persecution kind of went in pockets during the first century. And they rose and fell depending who the emperor was and depending on your geography. But John was not immune from that persecution. He's not a man that's writing about a rainbow land with rainbows and kitty cat tails all the time. He writes this language and it's language of hope, but it's language of hope written into an environment of difficulty and darkness. But here is what John says. And this is John's really part of the Christmas story. It's his prologue, his beginning of his gospel. John does not write about the birth of Christ. Only Matthew and Luke do. But John gives us this theological prologue introducing Jesus as the light of the world. And here's what he says in verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, everybody. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, or we could say cannot, overcome it. Now, from these two passages, Isaiah chapter 9 In John chapter 1, I want to highlight two principles. They're simple, but they're really critical. 
The first principle I want you to see is that the light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. The presence of the light does not deny the existence of darkness. Christianity is not a religion that denies darkness exists. There are some who are like that. There's even some, money, uh, some movies that kind of portray this. I found this one. It's my very favorite example. And first service didn't think it was that funny. So if you could just be like nice to me and laugh at it, that would be good. So here, take a look at this video and you'll see what I mean. And maybe you've met someone like this. I'm just going to come right out. I have no idea what's going on or what this place is at all. Hi! I am Princess Unikitty, and I welcome you all to Cloud Cuckoo Land! So there's no signs or anything. How does anyone know what not to do? Here in Cloud Cuckoo Land, there are no rules. There's no government, no babysitters, no bedtimes, no frowny faces, no bushy mustaches, and no negativity of any kind. You just said the word no like a thousand times. And there's also no consistency. I hate this place. Any idea is a good idea, except the not happy ones. Those you push down deep inside where you'll never, ever, ever, ever find them. I always talk about Cloud Cuckoo Land. That's where that comes from. But... Christianity is not like this at all. And I think sometimes people get the wrong impression of us. Not of me, because I'm a pessimist by nature. But, you know, from some of us. Christianity, however, is very different than this. It acknowledges the existence of evil, but Christianity and God himself does not deny the presence of evil, but he stares evil in the face and does something about it. He is not paralyzed by evil. Next week, we'll be looking at this same passage, John chapter 1, but we'll look at the full context of 1 through 12, and we'll be looking at it a little more deeply. But that context points out very clearly that not only has this light entered into the world and that this light is the life of all mankind and that the light cannot be overcome by the darkness, but it could not be more clear in John chapter 1 that Jesus himself is the light of the world, that he came in, and that means that Jesus he lived in the midst of darkness. He went, came into the darkness, stared into the face, and did not allow the darkness to corrupt him or alter the way he loves those around him. God, knowing the darkness that humanity, and these words are really important, had willfully chosen for itself, sent Jesus Christ into this world a world full of darkness. And I don't get the impression that Jesus was like monk, carrying around like sanitizing wipes everywhere he went, ashamed at getting dirty or afraid of going into dark and bad places. He wasn't like that. He entered into the darkness. And the light of his character and his presence was so strong that the darkness could not overcome him. This means for us that we as Christians are meant to go into dark places, doesn't it? We are, we are meant to. We are not meant to create Christian guilds of every kind where we never have to come into contact with the darkness and we bubble ourselves off. We are meant 
to go into the darkness while not allowing the darkness to overcome us and to penetrate the darkness with the love and the light of Jesus Christ. The second principle we see from these texts, from Isaiah 9 and John 1, is that the darkness can neither understand or overcome the light. The darkness can neither overcome or understand the light. I get this language from the text itself, from John chapter 1, verse 5. And you'll notice that the text says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you're using the Blue Bible, you'll notice that. But you'll see in the Blue Bible, there's a little footnote. Uh, it has a little A by it. And if you follow down to the bottom of the, uh, the bottom left-hand side of this page, you'll see it says, or understood. The Greek word here that is translated in your New Testament, it's sometimes translated overcome, sometimes understand. But the Greek word, it's katalambano. It, it can have the lexical range of meaning either to seize or to grasp. To seize that's what they think overcome, or to grasp, to understand. But even though it has this lexical range, the, the writers, uh, the translators aren't exactly sure which they meant. But we have English words that have all kinds of lexical range or different meanings. Uh, we have the word trunk, right? And it could refer, to, uh, could refer to something that you carry a suitcase when you go on a trip. It could refer to your car trunk. It could refer to an elephant trunk. But in that case... The word trunk is a noun. It can't mean more than one of those things, right? It can't be an elephant trunk and a suitcase and a car trunk. But when you have a word like this that has the lexical range, but it's a verb, commentators, and and it makes sense if you just think about it, think it can carry double meaning. And that's exactly what I think is going on here. Let me help you understand the word carries these double meaning to seize or to grasp, to understand or to overcome. And so what John is saying here is that darkness cannot even understand why the light does what it does. There's an interesting passage. It's uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and it retells the temptation of Jesus. He's been without food for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan himself comes to Jesus to tempt him to sin. He first tempts him with stones that he says, you have the power, turn him to bread. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. Satan then takes him to a high place and he says, jump off here and you can prove to everybody that you're the man, right? That you cannot be hurt, that you have, you have authority over the nature. And Jesus says, I will not put my God to the test. And Satan finally comes to him and says, look at all the land around you. If you just bow down to me and to worship, I will give you all of this. And Jesus says, I would never do that, for I will have no other gods before me. And I think here in Matthew chapter 4, it's not just that Satan is doing some kind of a token temptation so that we can all see how awesome Jesus is. I think Satan himself, because evil itself does not understand or comprehend the light. Satan looks at Jesus and says, why wouldn't you take this route to power, into authority, into pleasure? And Jesus says, I'm I'm just not going to do that. The light cannot be understood by the darkness. Have you ever been at your job or at your school? And if you just told a white lie or if you just looked in a certain place, you know you'll see the right person who has the right answer, right? Right? And most of your friends would think, like, that's an obvious decision. 
Why wouldn't you tell that little white lie to get yourself out of trouble? Why wouldn't you take a little peek, help you get into college? But the darkness does not understand the light. Second, the darkness cannot overcome the light. John is not saying that the darkness does not sometimes win a battle. ISIS, David Koresh, apartheid, the darkness wins battles all the time. Where evil seems to be winning, but what John is saying is that the darkness cannot overcome and finally win the war. The darkness will never win the war. And Jesus will always overcome. That's why almost all of our literature has, that, has it that way, isn't it? Frodo always gets that ring in Mount Doom. Harry Potter always defeats Voldemort. That's the way it works. Because somewhere deep inside, we know that in the long run, the darkness cannot overcome the light. And that is a Christian theme, even if all those who write it are not Christians. So then, we see that the light shines in the darkness and that we are to enter into the darkness to be a light. We've seen that the darkness, no matter what it does, no matter where we go, cannot overcome the light and certainly can never overcome the light of God shown to us through the person of Jesus. But this morning, I want to close by talking briefly about what exactly is our hope that we are looking forward to. What is it? And our hope is nothing more than a restored and renewed world full of the light of God. A renewed and restored world full of the light of God. And to show you this, I'm going to draw your attention to one final passage. It's found on the very last page of the entire Bible in the very last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. This passage has two ideas that it's going to teach us, and it's going to teach us them in a very figurative or symbolic way. And I'm going to help you to see the symbolism. Revelation is written by the same man who wrote the Gospel of John that we just looked at in John 1, 4, and 5. But this book, scholars believe he is writing at the, near the very end of his life. And in fact, near the end of his life, John the Apostle had been exiled onto an island. It's called the Island of Patmos. And he's on a small, deserted island island. And on this island, God gives him visions. And if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know what I mean. The book of Revelation is highly symbolic and figurative. One might even say highly weird and full of really bizarre stuff. But in Revelation 22, the apostle John, in the closing of this book of the vision of the future of the reality of God, tells us what that future reality will look at, look like. And he uses the language of Eden restored. And I'm going to help you see that symbolism as we go through. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree even, were the healing were for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse the throne of god and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads there will be no more light 
No more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light himself, and they will reign forever and ever. There's two things I want you to see in this text. The first is that the effects of sin will be completely overcome. That is the point of verses 1 through 3, at the very beginning of verse 3. And there's a couple symbolic elements that tell us that it is referring back to paradise restored. In verse 1, we are talked about a river. In Genesis chapter 2, 9 and 10, there is a river that flows through the Garden of Eden. And in here, this river of life is that same river, but this river restored. In verse uh, 2, we are talked about a tree of life, a tree that lines the, the, the streets that go down the city where the throne of God is. And on, on this tree, it's most likely the word tree can either be singular or plural, right? And so this is probably plural. It's a, it's a street lined with trees. And every month, a new tree gives bear, bears forth its fruit, and they are filled, just as the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. And the leaves of that very tree are for the healing of the nations, meaning that all of the effects of the fall, the pain and the sorrow, and our bodies rebelling against us will be completely undone. And in verse 3, to make sure that the symbolism is not lost, he says there will be no more curse, for the curse will be undone. And as a result of having this curse undone, in verses 3, at the end of chapter, or end of verse 3 through the end of verse 5, we see the theme that God picks up next, or that John picks up next, is that our relationship with God will be fully and completely restored. We see in verse 3 that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, meaning he is on that throne, and the servants are around him, and they are serving him. His presence will be in person. The text says they will see his face. And every person who read this originally, the original audience, would think back to Exodus chapter 33, verses 20 through 23, where Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and he's allowed to just look on the shoulder or the backside of God. But he couldn't actually look at God, for God was too powerful. And if he was to see his face, he would die. But here in verse 4, we will dwell in the city of God, with the tree of God, with the, tr the river of God, and the throne of God, and we will see his face. And his name will be written on his foreheads. Don't think about a Sharpie where it says Bill on it, right? That would be embarrassing. We won't go through eternity with Sharpie written on us. The idea here is of possession or ownership. And I can think of my sons, of, of Walton and Harrison and Jackson, and I can think of them, and it is as if my name is on the forehead, and the same thought here is that possession, that they are my boys. I don't possess them in terms of, now you will do what I say forever and ever, amen, and you will never, ever leave my house. In fact, that's not even what I'm shooting for. Very much the opposite, right? But possession means, you know, Walton, Harrison, Jackson, you will always be mine. It doesn't matter what you do. You'll never not be my son. There'll come a day when you'll be old enough and you won't want quiet Christmas tree time anymore. But when quiet Christmas tree time is done and you marry and you have kids of your own, you're my little boy and you are mine. Verse 4 is not about Sharpies, but it's about possession, not possession of enslavement, but possession of love. Verse 5, there will be no more night. 
darkness, the theme of evil. For they will not need the light to overcome the darkness because the light will be there constantly. It will not be the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, but the light of God himself. And the imagery here is of God himself illuminating that great city. It is not saying that God is like an LED light bulb. It's imagery that he will dispel every evil and he will guide everything we do. And I love how this verse ends, and we will reign with him forever and ever. And if we were ever tempted to think that there was anything demeaning about this text in verse 3 when it says we will serve him forever, it is like this mutual uh, relationship of reigning and serving. And our serving to God does not in any way diminish that we rule with him Not as equals, but as happy to be under the loving goodness of our Savior and King. That is our future. And for 2,000 years, Christ, who was born, who was crucified, who was buried, and who has rose again, we have longed for that future. And just as the apostles did in Acts chapter 1, when will you set up your kingdom? We long for that kingdom. And as the Lord prayer prayer teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look around and we know that it is not here. But now we wait with patient hope. For this Christmas season, we are reminded that the first coming is not the end, but that Christ will come again. And when he does, the light of Christ will expel all darkness. And our current reality is, of going into the darkness and conflicting and coexisting with darkness to bring the light of Christ to bear and to overcome the evil that exists in this world will be no longer necessary. For Christ himself will return and he will make all things new and all things right. And the righteousness of God will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And the justice of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And this has always been the message at the beginning of Advent, as we look towards the coming, as we look back towards the first coming, we begin by looking towards his second. And if he should choose not to return again once more this year and set up that eternal kingdom, then we pledge ourselves to live as a light in the darkness as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ taught us in his first coming. Let me pray for you. Father, as we move to communion, prepare our hearts and minds to be the light of God in this world. If there are any of us this morning who are struggling with who Jesus is, what he has done on our behalf, I pray that you would open their eyes to the power of the Holy Spirit and help them to see the beauty of Christ. For all of us who have seen this beauty, as we come to the communion table, help us to revel in the coming reality of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this In his name, amen. Pray for you as we close out. This is a special benediction for our Christmas season, and I want to read it over you and hear the beauty of it and the relationship that God invites for each one of us that he wants so desperately to have and the joy that would come from it. Listen to the words as I speak to them to you. Now, to God Almighty, whose plans for us do not end in death, to our Lord Jesus Christ, who entered into our world so that we might enter into his, to the Holy Spirit who works constantly in our hearts, preparing us for that great day. Be all of our praise 
and all of our love until we meet him face to face. And in the meantime, give us the incredible joy that comes from following you in the here and now. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thanks so much for coming.